Amen. If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Exodus chapter 5. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 to 21 is going to be our text for study this morning as we continue working our way through Exodus. If you're new at Christ Fellowship, our pattern is simply to begin at the beginning of a book and to work our way through, trying to see what the Lord has revealed to us uh, in His Word from beginning to end, and we're working our way through this glorious book of Exodus. And if you have Exodus 5, verses 1 to 21, I'd ask you to stand with me out of respect for God's Word while I read this passage of Scripture to us. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him? By letting Israel go. I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. They answered, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Pharaoh also said, Look, the people of the land are so numerous. And you would stop them from their labor. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves. But require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men. Then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, This is what Pharaoh says, I'm not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, Finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, Why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it's your own people who are at fault. But he said, you're slackers, slackers. That is why you're saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foreman saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron, who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Praise God for His Word. It's a passage that really points us to a a great confrontation. As I thought about that this week, as I thought about this passage, I I was uh, reminded of the fact that for the past decade or so, uh, the media has been trumpeting a a reality, kind of a sociological reality called the the rise of the nuns. The rise of the nuns. So who are the nuns? Well, the nuns, and that's spelled N-O-N-E-S, 
Well, those are people who respond to surveys about religion in America, and when they're asked what their religious affiliation is, they say, no religious affiliation. In the words of one recent article I read, the nuns are the atheists, the agnostics, and the nothing in particular. They're the spiritual but not religious, and those who are neither or both. They span class, gender, age, race, and ethnicity. They, period, really, period, don't, period, like, period, religion, period. And the article really seems to exult in the fact that now in America, some 30% of respondents would answer and say that they have no religious affiliation. It's almost as if the media is, is taking joy and fomenting kind of a godlessness in our culture. But while they are a diverse group, many nuns do share one thing in common. They would all say together that they do not believe, many would say that they do not believe God is knowable, and many of the nuns would say that that really doesn't matter. In other words, they can go through their life just fine without God. And so knowing God for them is really a matter of indifference. And they think that's true for us as well. But is that true? Is knowing God simply a matter of indifference? Does it really not matter whether or not a person knows the true God. In our passage for study this morning, we're going to meet someone who did not know God and did not think that the fact that he did not know God was very important at all. He very clearly did not care to know God, and this is Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh is someone who very boldly admits that he doesn't know God. He makes it clear that he doesn't think knowing God is very important and sitting where you are this morning, I, I wonder, if you were honest, if you would put yourself maybe in the same place as Pharaoh was, uh, that you don't really know God and you don't really care and you really don't think that it matters very much. Friend, if that's where you are this morning, we're very glad that you're here. But we hope that this sermon for you will be a really helpful sermon, and we hope that you'll be confronted with the reality that actually knowing God is the most important thing in this life. That what you need more than anything else is a relationship that you would truly know the real God, the true and only God. And we're going to see this morning as we look at this passage that not knowing God is ultimately disastrous. So we're continuing our study of the book of Exodus. Last week we looked at chapter 4 verses 18 to 31. It was this account of Moses returning to Egypt after living in Midian for some 40 years. And we saw what happened when Moses, who was at first reluctant to obey God, uh, by God's grace began to obey God. And he returned to Egypt and he met with the elders of Israel just as he had been commanded to. And initially he met with great success. He obeyed God's command to do the miracles that God had given him, those three great signs and wonders. And the people of Israel believed Moses, and they worshiped God because they realized that God cared for them, and it seemed great. But as we find out in our passage for study this morning, things would not always be so easy. In verses 1 to 21, which we just read, we see what happens when Moses confronts Pharaoh. And remember that Pharaoh is the most powerful king. He's the most powerful monarch of his time. But we also need to understand, as we study through the book of Exodus together, that Pharaoh did not only think of himself as a king. He thought of himself as a god. Uh, according to Egyptian mythology, while Pharaoh was ruling, he took on the incarnation of the god Horus, 
And after his death, he was associated and identified with the god Osiris, the god of the underworld. You see, Pharaoh did not only hold political authority in Egypt, he held all spiritual authority in Egypt as well. And that means that this confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh is going to take the shape ultimately of a confrontation, a clash between two gods. You have the false god Pharaoh being confronted now with the true god, Yahweh, the god of the Hebrews, the god of Israel. As commentator Goran Larson put it, the critical issue that will be settled is nothing less than who is in charge. Who has the authority over the people of Israel and ultimately over all nations and all of creation? The God of Israel or the gods of Egypt manifest in Pharaoh. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to cover this passage together using three points. Three points this morning from Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 to 21. First, we're going to see confrontation. Verses 1 to 5, confrontation. Second, we will see oppression. Verses 6 to 14, oppression. And third, we will see frustration. And that's verses 15 to 21, frustration. And we'll see that when we look at verses 15 to 21. We're going to spend most of our time on the first point, and then we're going to cover the second two points more briefly this morning. Look at confrontation with me, if you will. Many of us remember the June 12, 1987 speech by then-President Ronald Reagan when he was in Berlin, and he was close to the Berlin Wall, and he confronted the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, and he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. At the time, many political pundits criticized Reagan for being so uh, upfront and so direct, but in hindsight, many people would now look at that, that particular point of political confrontation as a major turning point in world history. Uh, it brought freedom to East Germans, perhaps more quickly. It hastened the end of the Cold War, and it revealed that Reagan, as a political leader, was courageous. And it's true that Reagan was courageous. In Exodus 5, however, Moses actually faces a far greater challenge than Reagan ever did. Uh, you see, Reagan and Gorbachev, well, they were political equals, more than that, Reagan had a huge military behind him. But now consider that Moses and Pharaoh, they are not equals in any way. Moses is a, a shepherd from Midian. And Pharaoh is the most powerful king then living. They were not equals. And yet notice that Moses here, by faith, faithfully confronts Pharaoh just as God had commanded him to do. Look at verses 1 and 5 again with me. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, Who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. They answered, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, or else he may strike us with plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from their labor. Now, we don't know how long it was after Moses spent time with the elders of Israel and the people and showed them those miracles, and they believed that Moses and Aaron then went before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It was perhaps a few days. We're not certain. 
we're also not certain exactly who this Pharaoh of Egypt was. But if, uh, well, but if, if kind of historical calculations are correct, particularly those lining up with the chronology of the Bible, well, then this was Pharaoh Amenhotep II, who succeeded the throne of Egypt in 1450 B.C. We also don't know how Moses and Aaron were able to obtain an audience with this king. Uh, it's very possible that they went in with the elders of, uh, of the Hebrews. I think that's very likely. And so those elders perhaps had some access to Pharaoh. Or it's also possible that Moses, who had grown up as Egyptian royalty, was still afforded some freedom because of that status. And so he was able to come before the king. We're not sure. What we are sure of is that when they came before the king, they did precisely what God had commanded them to do. They faithfully declared God's message. Verse 1, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. Now, if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that Moses here is really speaking as an Old Testament prophet. Uh, And there's this phrase that's used over and over. And the phrase is, thus says the Lord. Moses is not speaking on his own authority. Moses is speaking on the authority of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And notice that the, Mos- that the message which Moses gave is precisely the message that the Lord had commanded him to give back in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 18. Uh, God wanted uh, his people to be set free so that they could go into the wilderness to worship him. Now, some people, when they have read verse 1, they've been a little confused by the approach that Moses and Aaron are taking with Pharaoh. Uh, They seem to be talking about a three-day festival when we know, because we've been studying through Exodus, that God's intention is to set his people free permanently and bring them on to the promised land. So how are we to understand this? Well, some commentators, they would say, notice that Moses and Aaron say we're going to be in the wilderness for three days, but they never say that we're going to return again to Egypt. That's true. But I don't think that's exactly what's going on. What I think is going on, and I agree with those commentators who would suggest this, is that God here is giving Pharaoh a test, and it's a simple test. In many ways, it's a small test. Are you going to submit to my authority and allow my people to go for three days, or are you not? God is laying down the gauntlet, if you will, before Pharaoh, saying, is it going to be my way, or is it going to be your way? And he's doing it in something which is ultimately a little thing. Would Pharaoh submit to God or not? But just as God already said what happened in verse 2, we see how Pharaoh responds, that Pharaoh had no intention of obeying the Lord and letting the people of Israel go. Look at what he says there. Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. Look at that question. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? That, in many ways, is the central question that Exodus answers. Who is the true God? Whose will is going to be done? Who is sovereign? Is it going to be Pharaoh, or is it going to be Yahweh, the God of Israel? Who is the Lord? Notice that Pharaoh did not know Yahweh the Lord, and notice that he assumed that it did not matter at all that he did not know the Lord. Uh, Pharaoh assumed that what was most important is that his will would be done and that he would live the way he wanted to live. He assumed that his word would be the one that would prevail. But as we read through Exodus, we're going to see very, very clearly that ultimately Pharaoh is going to very soon learn that it will be otherwise. 
over the next several weeks, really in the chronology of Exodus, and even as we go through the book of Exodus together, we're going to see Pharaoh learn in no uncertain terms who Yahweh is, and that Yahweh is not a pathetic God, not someone to be trifled with, but he is the true and living God. He's the one who's able to act to save his people. Neither Pharaoh nor any of the gods of Egypt will be able to stand up to the Lord. Instead, they will all feel God's judgment in coming days. Now, in verse 3, Moses and Aaron respond to Pharaoh and tell him that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, had met with them. And then they urged him once again to let the people go. And then they give a reason for that. They say, they say let us go or else he might strike the people with a plague or a sword. And perhaps when you read that, your, your eyebrows lifted a little bit because nowhere in Exodus have we seen the Lord threaten the people of Israel with that kind of punishment to this point. And so, again, that last line has raised some eyebrows. How are we to think about that? I think we're to understand it this way. I think we're to understand this as Moses and Aaron are trying to help Pharaoh realize that it is a very important thing to obey the Lord, and that those who refuse to obey the Lord, well, they will face serious consequences. The people of Israel, for their part, were ready to obey God, but Pharaoh was not. They're saying Pharaoh should not stand in the way of what the Lord wants done, or else there may be, may be disastrous consequences for everyone involved. But again, notice verse 4 and 5. We're going to see this over and over and over. Pharaoh has no intention of getting out of the way here. He simply dismisses Moses and Aaron and dismisses their concerns entirely. And he says that they're causing the people of Israel to neglect their work. As you read through this passage and other passages in Exodus, you see how heartless and cruel Pharaoh was. Uh, he was a cruel dictator. But defeated now, Moses and Aaron had no choice but to leave. And so for a time, they leave the throne room. Now, there's a lot we could say about verses 1 to 5, but I want us just to make one observation before we move on, and that observation is this. Like Pharaoh, many people in our day assume that it doesn't matter that they don't know the Lord. That's the general assumption. Uh, there may be a God out there, but it doesn't really impact my life if he's out there. This is what stood out to me this week. Notice in the case of Pharaoh, there's this great hubris here, uh, and it's understandable because his entire life, Pharaoh had been told by all around him that he is the incarnation of the Egyptian gods. Uh, his entire life, all of his will has been done, and he assumes now that all, all his life, his will will be done. He says very clearly he doesn't know the Lord, and it's very clear that he has no intention of getting to know him. He doesn't think it's important to know this Yahweh that Moses and Aaron were proclaiming. But very soon again, Pharaoh's world is going to be turned upside down, listen, by the very one he assumed it wasn't important to know. And I think that's an important point for us to see, because particularly in America, many people are like Pharaoh. They don't know God. And they assume that it is unimportant for them to know God. That's the assumption. It's unimportant. You see, they have a good job. They have money. Or they have insurance. They have a nice home. And so when com someone comes along and tells them about Jesus and says, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the creator of all. Jesus is the redeemer. Jesus died so that you might be forgiven. They look at what they have and they say, who is the Lord? I don't need the Lord. I have all that I need. And so they're not interested in getting to know the true God. And well, they say, you know, there may not be a God, but if there is a God, I assume, again, I assume 
that he's a nice God and he's going to like me because after all, I'm a pretty nice person. Friend, if you're honest this morning, I wonder if those thoughts go through your head when you think about this issue of religion. You, you might believe that God exists, but you don't believe that it's important to get to know him. If you were honest, you'd say it's much more important for you to get ahead in life and to achieve your dreams and all the things that you would desire. There are many people like that. If so, again, I want to challenge your thinking this morning on that point and want to try to help you understand that it's vital for you to know the true God. Let me give you four reasons why it's vital for you to know the true God. First, it is important for you to know the true God because if you don't know God, you will go through life ignorant of ultimate reality. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, most people in America go through life entertaining themselves to death. Uh, that, is a, that is an increasing phenomenon that the church of Jesus Christ must begin to be different about. We are not created to watch Netflix for eight hours a day and go to sleep. We're not created to constantly have music playing in our ears so we don't have to interact with other people or bless them and do good to them. But many people in our culture are being discipled by the broader culture to entertain themselves to death, but that's not everyone. Many people in our culture are quite thoughtful, and they work hard to think, and they work hard to get ahead, and they're doctors and lawyers and teachers and business professionals and professors, and they have a love for knowledge, and they value knowledge, and they study, and year after year, they increase in their knowledge of all the things that you can find in this world, and yet, if they fail to know God, which is to say, if they fail to know the true God, even the most educated person ultimately goes through life in ignorance. They can tell you about history. They can tell you about the atom. They can tell you about space and mathematics. But they can't tell you much at all about ultimate reality. They can't tell you much at all about the one who ultimately matters, uh, the one whom all of this ultimately is about. They can't tell you very much about the one who flung the galaxies into space and hung the stars in the heavens. They can tell you nothing about the one who holds all things together, Scripture says, by the word of his power. They can tell you nothing about the one who right now is causing their brains to think and their hearts to beat and their lungs to breathe. They can tell you nothing about the one who so loved men and women that he sent his only begotten son to die on a cross so that sinners could be forgiven for their sins and brought into a relationship with the one who loved them and created them. They can tell you nothing about God's purposes for history and how this world, listen, with all of its vaunted learning, will soon pass away. People who don't know God can tell you lots of things about this passing world, but they don't know much about ultimate reality. They can't fit it all together into a cohesive whole that makes sense about why we're here, why it matters, and where we're going. It's important to know God. Second, it's important to know God because if you don't know God, you will never be satisfied in this life. That's just a reality. You see it in commercial after commercial. There's always something else to buy. There's always some new glittery trinket out there that's supposed to give us meaning. Uh, you see it in a weary college student who is, who's really beating herself to death because she believes that if she can just get a 4.0 in college, she will find ultimate satisfaction. You see it in the hardworking businessman who neglects his family 
because he believes if he can just get that next promotion, that next advancement at work, he's finally going to have that elusive something that he's looking for. What is it? What is it that drives all of that behavior? It's this. It is this belief that we can find ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in this life. People try to find it in different ways. By acquiring new thing after new thing, by education, by financial success or work success, or one fun and exciting adventure after another. You guys notice the commercials are constantly people having adventures all over the world all the time? It's amazing. How do they do that? Constantly, on and on and on. Why is it constantly on and on and on to the next location and the next location and the next location? Why is it never enough? Friends, it's never enough because we were not created for this world. We were created for God. And we will not find fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment, in anything in this world, no matter how hard we try. In the 400, St. Augustine put it this way, speaking to God, he said, you've made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it comes to rest in you. In the 20th century, C.S. Lewis put it this way, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And we could add, for another person. Friends, only those who truly know God will ever be satisfied in this life. There's a third reason. If you don't know God, you will waste your life. What do I mean by that? I mean, I mean this. I mean that, that it's true that we were created to find satisfaction in God. We were created also, though, to live for God. Again, bringing all of life into some kind of cohesive whole so that whatever I do, whether I'm a doctor or a trash collector or a teacher or missionary, whatever I do, I'm ultimately doing all that I do because I love the one who created me and knows me and loves me. But the person who doesn't know God and goes through his or her life just trying to accomplish things, just trying to make themselves happier and happier, ultimately they end up wasting their life. Why? Because they're living for the wrong person. They're living for themselves rather than the one who created them. And so you may seem big and important in this world, but in God's eyes, friend, we say it with love. Ultimately, all that you're striving so hard to achieve is ultimately going to end up being a waste. Uh, to do that is to be like a madman in an asylum, spending your days collecting bottle tops and caps because you think they're gold and silver. You think it's valuable, but at the end of the day, you're going to find out that at the end of it, it ultimately was just what the Bible says is vanity of vanity, emptiness, and you'll have nothing left of substance. That brings us to our fourth and most serious reason why you need to know God. If you don't know God, the day will come when you will face God in judgment. And that is a weighty, weighty reality. If what I said is true, I've just said the most important thing you'll ever hear. That the day is coming when you must stand before the God who created you and knows you and loves you, and you must give an account for every word and action and even intention of your heart to this God who is searchingly holy who knows all things, who knows all that you've ever done, 
and who is assessing you even now. No, it's a weighty thing to think about. But how do you think you're going to do on Judgment Day if, like Pharaoh, you go through your entire life ignoring God? How will you be able to stand before the one who is keeping you alive now? When you stand before him and say, God, all I ever did in my life was ignore you and assume that you were much less important than the next toy or the next degree or the next house or the next promotion. And I took the life that you gave me and I lived it entirely for myself. Now the Bible says it's a weighty, fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we don't say it because as religious people, we like to scare people with religious words about a scary future thing. Friend, we believe this because Jesus taught it. We believe this because the only one who's ever lived and claimed to be God and said, I'm going to die and rise from the dead and actually did that, that person says, it's better to lose your hand than to go to hell. And so we're bringing before you this morning, because we love you, this reality in the hopes that God will use it to help you think about the fact that it is crucial for you to know the true and living God. And let me just begin by saying, knowing Him is life. Oh, you'll find far more joy in Him than anything else in this world. So friend, do you know God? What I mean by that is, do you have a saving relationship with God through Jesus? Because knowing God is vital. Listen, listen to what Jesus says it means to know God in John 17, verse 3. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Uh, how do you come to know God? You come to know God by trusting in Jesus, by turning from your sins and putting your hope in Him and Him alone. You see, the Bible teaches that we are all created by God to know Him and love Him. Like, that's the purpose of our life, is to know God. That's why we were created. Oh, but our first parents, Adam and Eve, they turned their back on God in the garden, and they assumed that it would be better for them to do their will rather than God's will. Uh, they disobeyed His command, and we sinned in them, and because we come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature, which resist God and kind of shrinks down our reality to our own desires and goals and the things that we think are going to make us most happy in our quickly passing life. And that leads us to, to break the commands of God, but it also leads us to harm others as well. And we have all done this. Friend, if you're just checking out Christianity, you have to understand you're not sitting in a room of a bunch of people who think that they are particularly good people and somehow we deserve God's favor. That's not what we believe. Uh, we understand ourselves to be sinners who are in desperate need of the love and grace and mercy of God. And the good news this morning is that love and grace and mercy from God is available. It's available in a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Uh, God the Father sent his Son into the world. The eternal Son of God became a man, Jesus Christ. And Jesus walked among us, as it were. He lived a perfect life because that was his mission was to fulfill all righteousness. And when the time was right, he set his face towards Jerusalem because he was going to sacrifice himself on the cross. Why? Because he was going to bear in himself the punishment of the sins that we've committed. On the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He died, but then he rose from the dead. And this morning, he invites you to come know God. 
Turn from your sins. Put your trust in Jesus. All of your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future. It's a free gift from God. You will become a son or daughter of God because he will give you his spirit, which is a spirit of adoption, and you will know him. And you'll know him not just now, but you will know this glorious God forever and ever and ever. And that gift, and it's a gift, that gift is offered to you this morning. If you will think. And that's what has to happen. Pharaoh assumed it didn't matter whether or not he knew God. Many people assume it doesn't matter whether or not they know God. Friend, you must begin to think about that question. And if we can help you in any ways, we'd love to do that. We'd love to sit down and talk with you about what Jesus has done for us and why he is glorious and good and he's a savior for you. And we pray that you will put your trust in Christ even today. We're praying that even today. Well, friends, praise God for the the offer of salvation that there is in Jesus. In verses 1 to 5, we see Moses confront Pharaoh. Now in verses 6 to 14, we see how Pharaoh responds. We see oppression. The gulag work camps of 20th century Soviet Union were notorious for their cruelty. The Soviet government would round up uh, all of the undesirables, including criminals and political opposition and Christian leaders and others, and crammed them into hundreds of camps around Russia where they worked and labored in terrible conditions. And many of those hundreds of camps held between 2,000 and 10,000 prisoners who worked all day long. The conditions were deplorable. Uh, one, one historian said the combination of long working hours, harsh climatic and other working conditions, inadequate food, and summary executions killed tens of thousands of prisoners each year. And actually, it would have been very similar in Pharaoh's work camps in ancient Egypt. Pharaoh worked his slaves mercilessly. Sun up, sun down, they toiled away. And as you see from our passage, they toiled away in the hot sun, baking bricks for Pharaoh's projects, many building projects. Speaking about the slave bricklayers in Pharaoh's labor camps, one ancient Egyptian observed this to his son. He said their, their kidneys, speaking of these, of these workers, these slaves, their kidneys suffer because they are out in the sun with no clothes on. Their hands are torn to ribbons by the cruel work, and they have to knead all sorts of muck. Friends, it was cruel work. We need to understand that Pharaoh was not a, a gentle leader, and his cruelty killed many. But of course, in a fallen world, things can always go from bad to worse. And things going from bad to worse is really what you see when you look at these verses, verses 6 to 14. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people as well as their foremen, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks from them as they were making before. Do not reduce it, for they are slackers, and that is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men. Then they will be occupied with it and not pay attention to deceptive words. So the overseers and foremen of the people went out and said to them, this is what Pharaoh says. I'm not giving you straw. Go get straw yourselves wherever you can find it. But there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. 
The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when straw was provided. Then the Israelite foreman, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? You know, on one level, it's pretty remarkable that Pharaoh allowed Moses and Aaron to walk out of the throne room without trying to kill them. Perhaps it was because God was restraining their violence, but I think it's more likely that Pharaoh, who was quite clever, opted for another method of dealing with these two upstarts. Pharaoh would divide and conquer. Pharaoh would make life so difficult for the Israelites, for his Israelite slaves, that they would then turn on Moses and Aaron because Pharaoh would blame them for all of the Israelites' problems. Verses 6 of the first part of verse 8, we see that his plan centered on something as simple as straw. Uh, Much like rebar kind of reinforces and strengthens concrete, so when making mud bricks, the straw was useful to reinforce and to strengthen those bricks so that they could be used in the building projects of Pharaoh. Before, Pharaoh and the Egyptian had given straw to the people so that they could focus on the work of making the bricks, but now Pharaoh was going to stop giving his slaves straw. But notice, and here's where the pain comes in, there would be no reduction at all in the number of bricks that the slaves had to produce in the course of the day. You see, they would need to work doubly hard to try to somehow be able to produce as many bricks as before because now they have to go out and find their own straw. But look at Pharaoh's reasoning for the policy change here in verses 8 and 9. He says, for they are slackers, they're lazy. That's why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Impose heavier work on the men, then they will be occupied with it and and pay no attention to deceptive words. Uh, It's very clear once again that Pharaoh is not taking Yahweh's commands seriously at all. He calls them deceptive words. His view of Moses and Aaron is that they were simply liars who were distracting his slaves from doing what slaves should do. And what slaves should do is always serve every whim of Pharaoh all day, every day. Now in verses 10 to 14, we see what happens. The Egyptian overseers go to the Hebrew four men, kind of the leaders over the people of Israel there, and tell them this new decree. And the people of Israel, with no other option, begin to try to do it in verse 12. And they scatter, and they're looking for straw, and they have to substitute it for stubble, just putting whatever they can in these bricks to make them. But again, the task was impossible. They could not produce enough bricks as they had before. But of course, that was Pharaoh's intention. Pharaoh's plan was simply to demoralize the people of Israel. And so when the people of Israel failed to produce their quota of bricks, Egyptian overseers beat them savagely for their failure. Think about it. The the Hebrew foremen before had probably enjoyed their position. They probably enjoyed the authority they had over other Israelites, but now they were caught in Pharaoh's trap. I want us to make one observation here. In Pharaoh's brutality, we see the true nature of sin. And that's important for us to realize because sin comes along and it makes sweet promises to us of pleasure and joy and satisfaction. And at first, when we're playing with sin, it seems fun. Uh, It seems pleasurable for a season. But before long, we discover that we have actually become enslaved to those very sins so that we're unable to stop. In his commentary, Philip Ryken gave some really good examples of this. He said the angry man is mastered by his anger. When something makes him mad, he cannot control his temper. He always has to lash out. The lustful man is mastered by his lust. 
When temptation comes, he helplessly gives in to his cravings for pleasure. The selfish woman is mastered by her selfishness. She spends all her time thinking about her own desires and then pitying herself when they go unmet. She has no love left to give to anyone else. The gossip is mastered by her tongue. She cannot resist the urge to go tell somebody the latest news. And here's the thing about kind of the brutal nature of sin is that when we try to resist it, it does not let go easily. Sin is like Pharaoh. Uh, Sin will turn up the heat. Many of us have known the frustration uh, of trying to get the upper hand in our battle against a particular sin and found ourselves defeated over and over and over. We have felt like we're trying to make bricks without straw. And that's why, friends, listen, when we're enslaved to sin, we need to run to Jesus. Because Jesus is not like Pharaoh. Pharaoh is a cruel master. Jesus is a gentle master. Listen to what he says about himself in Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. It's an amazing thing to think that Jesus, our high priest, knows precisely what it is to be tempted with sin And even though he never succumbed to that temptation, he has a heart of compassion for us as we struggle with the temptations in our life. More than that, listen, Jesus is the mighty captain of our salvation, which means that it's his power that we need when we're going to fight against the enslaving sins and temptations in our lives. It is only by Jesus's spirit, by the spirit of Christ, that we can overcome the temptations and the enslavement to sin in our life. Listen, it's only through Jesus that we can know freedom, freedom from those sins that before enslaved us. So listen, the angry man can become patient and kind with Jesus' help. The lustful man can become pure in heart. The selfish woman, marked by complaining and grumbling, can become generous to others. The gossiping woman can become a peacemaker. Oh, brother or sister, if you're enslaved to sin this morning, do not battle alone. Look for an older, more mature brother or sister to help you. But most especially, listen, look to Jesus. Look to this gracious high priest who loves you and knows what you're dealing and is for you and will help you, and he's able to help you, and he's willing to help you. Know that Jesus not only died for your sins, he died so that you would be set free from your sins, so that you could walk in victory, and Jesus will do it. It would have been good if the foremen of Israel had run to the Lord when they faced the brutality of Pharaoh, but do you notice they didn't do that? Verses 15 to 21, we see actually they ran to Pharaoh, And that leads to frustration. Our third point, frustration. Look at verses 15 to 21. So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten, but it's your own people who are at fault. But he said, you're slackers, slackers. That's why you're saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks The Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. 
When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they said to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. It's simply true that old habits die hard. Uh, Moses and Aaron had come to the people of Israel and told them that the Lord was for them and that the Lord was going to set them free from Pharaoh's grasp. But, but the people of Israel had been slaves for a long time. And they still had a slave mentality. And so when Pharaoh turned up the heat, what do they do? Instead of running to the Lord, which they should have done, they instead run to Pharaoh and they seek mercy from Pharaoh. They probably hoped that there had been some mistake. They probably hoped that there had been some miscommunication between Pharaoh and the Egyptian overseers. Uh, after all, the Egyptians had always provided them with straw, and so they approached Pharaoh in verses 15 and 16, and, and they let them know that they hadn't received straw, and that's why the quota wasn't being met. And they say, you're blaming us, but really it's, it's because your own people are not doing what they're supposed to do. But of course, there had been no mistake. This was Pharaoh's plan the entire time. In verses 17 and 18, Pharaoh pounces on them. And he blames them, and he calls them slackers. And he says, it's your own laziness. But listen, it's your own laziness that makes you want to go sacrifice to the Lord. Pharaoh here is a master abuser. Abusers will abuse you and then blame you for the abuse. That's what they do. Pharaoh is a master abuser. And notice what he's trying to do subtly. He is dividing the people of Israel from Moses by subtly pointing to Moses as the reason for all of their trouble. Wasn't it better for you before Moses came? See, you won't have to suffer so much if you just don't listen to Moses anymore. For their part, the Hebrew foremen get the message. Verse 19, they saw that they were in trouble. They saw no hope. They saw that there was no way for their quota to be reduced. And so in verse 20 to 21, they do what you would expect them to do. They find Moses and Aaron, and they blame Moses and Aaron. They take their frustration out on them. They accuse them of being the cause of all of their suffering. You see, at this point in the narrative, Pharaoh's plan is working. One observation for us, God's ways often do not match our expectations. God's ways often do not match our expectations. After seeing Moses and Aaron, after seeing God's miracles, the people of Israel probably assumed that very soon they would be set free from their slavery. They'd be emancipated. They assumed God would take care of Pharaoh and life would finally be good. But that's not what happened, is it? No. Uh, actually, things got worse. They got a lot worse. They went from difficult slavery to unbearable slavery, right? They went from making bricks to trying to make bricks without straw, and it is like this, listen, in the Christian life as well, quite often, that God's ways do not match our expectations. Many new believers experience this. Young Christians, when they're newly converted, they think that being a Christian is going to be pretty easy. They're excited about their newfound faith in Jesus. Uh, they assume that they're going to read their Bible and pray and share the gospel and conquer their sins, and things are going to always be great, but then something happens. Then they start to suffer. Then they start to experience trials and difficulties, and their plans for the future are sometimes thwarted. And then this happens. They become more acquainted with the arrogance and stubbornness of their own sinful hearts. And like the Hebrew foreman in this passage, they're, they're confused. And they complain, and they grumble, and they say, it's not supposed to be this way. What happened? What happened is that these young believers learn that God's ways often do not match our expectations. 
We easily expect glory and joy in the Christian life as if ease is our birthright in Christ. But listen, God's plan is to make us like Jesus, and making us like Jesus involves suffering and trials, various forms of suffering and trials. John Newton wrote a hymn about this entitled, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow, which speaks to this issue of expectations so well. You'll actually find the the lyrics for this in your handout this morning. But listen, listen to what he wrote about expectations and how the Lord actually works in our lives as those who follow Jesus. He said, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of the heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I'd schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may seek thy all in me. Christ fellowship, God's ways often do not match our expectations, but God's ways are always good. And those sufferings and those delays and those failures and those setbacks which so frustrate us are actually his appointed means that he uses to make us more like Jesus. He crosses all of our fair schemes so that we might grow to find our all in him. And he is what we need. And he's good. Looking at these verses, we've seen Pharaoh's response to Yahweh's command. He didn't know the Lord. He didn't think that it mattered, but Pharaoh was wrong. And we'll see as we continue to study through Exodus very soon that Pharaoh will come to know the Lord as the Lord pours out his judgment on Egypt. Pharaoh will come to realize who God truly is. And friend, if you don't know the Lord this morning, we pray that you'll stick with us and that you might come to know who the Lord truly is as well. Let's pray.